The text for this morning is taken from the epistle of Paul to Titus. And we will be looking in particular this morning at Titus 1, the verses 5 to 9. We'll read that once again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the term steward is a term which is often used in the New Testament. It's found throughout Paul's writings, and you'll also find it throughout Jesus' parables as well. A steward was someone who served the master of the house. Sometimes he was a slave, sometimes a free manager. He ran the household for his master. But like a foreman, he didn't own what he was running. Now, you company owners might recognize that someone who is a foreman what he does reflects on the company. If he's respectful, if he listens to the customers, if he does his best to go out of his way to please them and help them, and to do his job well, then that's the face of the company. And it reflects well on the company itself. But if he does not do his job well, then that also reflects on his company. Now, the same was true for stewards back in the day. What a steward did reflected on his master. He could be the face of what people saw when they came to that household. In our passage, elders are compared to stewards. Now, elders are in a special position. They are sitting in a position where what they do is reflective of God, the ultimate master of our lives. And it's for this reason that Paul was so careful in who he caused to be appointed to office as well. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you, Titus, should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, if you remember from last time that we, went, uh, that we looked into Titus, you can remember that Paul had many companions in his travels. And at one point, possibly when he went on his way to Rome, he left Titus behind in Crete. And he wanted Titus to set in order the things that were lacking when he went on. Anything that Paul couldn't get to in the time that he spent there, he wanted him to complete. And he also wanted him to appoint elders to lead 
and to be Christ-filled, faithful examples. And he also meant to show the congregation what was expected in leadership and eventually what was expected in them. And so we see that our faithful God provides his people with stewards to reflect his name. And we'll see this first in their calling to office and second in their calling in office. Our faithful God provides his people with stewards to reflect his name. Before we go into this in depth, it's good to step back for a moment and consider this was an exciting time in Titus' ministry. Paul had left him in Crete, and the work began to grow. Churches around them had been planted in multiple cities, and now Paul encourages Titus to appoint elders in every city. Imagine that. This would have been a fairly short period of time that they had settled there, that Titus had been working there, and the work was just spreading like wildfire. Now, Paul is encouraging Titus to appoint elders, and we see there the word that's used is bishop. The idea behind this is literally an overseer. When you see the word bishop, you're not to think immediately of the Roman Catholic Church with the bishop and all his robes and vestments, but rather the word that's literally used is episcopos, which means overseer, one who watches over. It's used synonymously with elder. It's a different word because it's descriptive of their function. It's descriptive of what they do. They are local governing bodies. They are men within the congregation. And this is one of the reasons why we follow this pattern, why we appoint elders as well. This isn't the idea of men who are appointed to lord it over, men who are appointed to dictate to other people. But this was people who had individuals in their care. These churches had reached a point where they had grown to such an extent that it wasn't enough for just the ministers who were in place, the missionaries who were in place to govern them, to watch over them and help to raise them in the truth. But they were ready to grow on their own, and self-governance was an important next step. Now, it might be tempting at this point to think, well, I'm not an elder. This doesn't really apply to me. You might be looking at this list and think, I can wait before doing this. It's an ideal. I can settle for less. But if we look at it in this way, then we can see that we're looking at it from a mistaken point of view. We read in 1 Timothy 3 that this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. And otherwise see this as if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing to aspire to. These qualities that we find in an overseer are qualities that we should all aspire to. It's also something that isn't particularly unusual. It doesn't stand out. And those who are elders aren't people that are marked as 
particularly holy, but as one theologian says, and looking over this list of qualifications, it's most striking how unremarkable it is. And that's exactly the point. Essentially, an elder is someone who loves Christ and lives out this love in his life. There's nothing remarkable about, remarkable about it. He's not some super-Christian, but he's someone who's faithfully obedient and able to encourage and guide others to follow the same master that he does. And this faithfulness is what makes this a good thing to aspire to. Seeing it as something that's just for the particular elite of the church is wrong. But also, if we settle for less than what we find here in the book of Titus, then we're missing the point as well. The point of Titus, as we were able to look at before, The point of Titus was that it first speaks about men who are appointed to office and then it moves on to doctrine and shows how doctrine works its way out in life. So we can see that there is no settling. The reason for these requirements is not so that only some have to live up to them, but it shows that men, as they hear the gospel and it begins to work in their lives, they are changed by the Spirit, that they are on a trajectory It recognizes that some men are a little bit further along in their ability to teach than others. And so they are the ones who we look to for leadership. But we are all on this same, called to be on the same trajectory. We have a response as well. This passage is a call to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith the one who begins a good work and carries it out. Now, these men who are described here those are those who have taken hold of the faith and they've had it played out in their lives. It's not to say that they are perfect, but they are men who are striving to glorify God in their lives and who are recognized as doing so. Paul begins his list by saying that they are men who are of good reputation. They are men who are respected in the community. Those in the community are able to see these men, to see the evidence of the gospel as having transformed their lives. This is something that Paul also lived out. Paul and the other apostles lived out in their lives. You can see this most evidently in Acts 5. There they were meeting in the temple, and people were looking at them. It says everyone had a high regard for them, though they feared to join them. They were people that were respected in the community. Now there are three other things that are mentioned as well. Three ways to show what people saw in them. These three requirements were that they were blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. They are of good reputation, a stable marriage, and a stable family. Blameless. We'll look at this uh, in a moment. We'll have it explained in more detail later. But let's move on to the husband of one wife for a moment. The husband of one wife is literally a one-woman man. Now, 
the Romans and Greeks themselves were usually monogamous. That means they, had, they were men who had one wife or wives with one husband. Even though surrounding them, there were people that didn't have it, Romans and Greeks themselves as a whole generally had one wife. So we can see from that that the thrust of this passage is not so much against polygamy, although that is a factor for sure. How many wives you have isn't the main thrust. The idea behind this is no other women are allowed, wives or otherwise. The word here literally translates to one woman man. It's someone who is exclusively devoted to his wife in thought, desire, and action. In other words, monogamy isn't enough. You need to be exclusively devoted to your spouse. Having faithful children. These children are faithful. Faithful to God. Faithful to their family. Faithful to their responsibilities, obeying their parents and the Lord. Now, this isn't supplied here, although Paul does touch on it elsewhere. But it's definitely faithful as contrasted with the next line. Not accused of dissipation or insubordination. These children are children who believe, and they're not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. They are children who have this model to them by their parents. The parents are examples to their children as to their walk of life. Again, looking back to that blamelessness, blamelessness, husband of one wife. They're stable, stable families and men of good reputation who share this with their children. Now, what we can see as what we see being described here is gospel drenched christ adoring god glorifying families the perfect family you might say now clearly all families fall short no family is perfect but these families exult in having christ at the center of their lives they are beacons to the world that having christ at the center of your life changes you not because of anything that is done, but because of who Christ is. The radical nature of what he has accomplished. Sending his spirit into our lives revolutionizes us as members of Christ's body and lets us seek our joy outside of ourselves. It allows us to give up our personal wants and rebellions as kids. Give up our desires to put ourselves ahead of our families as parents. Give up our craving to find intimacy outside of marriage relationships and turn and find everything in Jesus Christ, seeking our king, our rock, and our foundation. Because Christ is at the center of these lives. And that's the beautiful thing that happens when he begins to transform. This leads us into our second, second point. In seeking our king, we are called to be blameless. Now, what exactly does it mean to be blameless? Parents, have you ever taught your kids about sin? Explaining to them what's right and wrong? What grieves God? 
Have you ever asked them after that, so do you sin? In my experience, you'll always get that one kid who says, no. Now, parents might tell a different story. A child might be an easy one, but no child is perfect. And this connects with how we experience reality, right? We know that even the people we respect the most are not perfect. They have their fallings, weaknesses, and shortcomings. And Scripture confirms this. It says, all unrighteousness is sin, 1 John 5. Again, in 1 John 1, we say if we... Uh, We read, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now consider this in the charge to be blameless. To do this, we have to look back at the men who have been called blameless in the past. Blameless or perfect in the Old Testament. Noah, Job, and David were all considered to be blameless. David calls himself blameless in Psalm 18. In the New Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth are also described as blameless in Luke 1. All of the people we meet in the Bible who are described as perfect might be admired by us as close to God in their walk, but they aren't what we would consider as perfect, are they? So how are we blameless? And this doesn't mean that we are without sin. Rather, it points to a change of focus. The prophet Samuel expresses this when he says, For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and my power. He makes my way perfect. Now, in Christ, we are blameless and perfect. If we take hold of Christ by faith, seek to walk in the center of his will and have him at the center of our lives, then we are blameless and perfect in the sight of God. This is what it means when it says a bishop, overseer, or elder must be blameless. Now, Paul goes on to expand on how someone can express their blamelessness as a steward of God. Again, the description is not something which is particularly remarkable. It says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violence, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. These are high standards, but they're not unreachable. Many people expect similar standards for their politicians, and yet it's important that they are kept this way. Why? Well, consider what these all have in common. Each of them is, in a small way, a reflection on the character of God, a dim mirror of who he is. This is why it's so important that these standards are what they are. When someone takes to a public office, they are in the public eye, and they are seen as representative. They are seen as representative of what somebody who is in a position like this should live like. Similarly, when someone takes to the office of elder, they are also in the public eye, and they are seen as representative of what a righteous walk with God looks, is meant to look like. You find a similar pattern in the everyday walk of life of a Christian among unbelievers, but it's taken one step up here because this is a position in which one bears much more responsibility. Now, consider the world for a moment. 
When you hear about politicians who are gluttons, who steal from the public purse, there's a universal outcry. Now, why, we ask ourselves, why does this happen? Don't so many more people do the same? Don't we have TV shows that glorify theft, violence, adultery, and more? Yes. However, politicians are in the public eye and in a position of responsibility. So they are held to a standard that the world doesn't even necessarily hold itself to. How much more for the elder? Elders are in a public position. They are representative as an under-shepherd of God. When people think of the care of God, they think in part of the work of his elders, work of his stewards, under-shepherds. That is why it's integral to be regarded as blameless. When elders and Christians in general are not, when they do what the list in verse 7 describes, when they are self-willed, pursuing their own wishes, when they are quick to flare up and lose their temper, when they are too attached to alcohol, violent or greedy for money, this reflects on the name of God. They, by their actions then, are taking the name of the Lord in vain because people see them as representatives of who God is, of reflections of his character. And when their actions cause them to be despised, then people turn around and end up despising God as well. But when they are obedient, faithful people, when they reflect some of the character of God, what a wonderful privilege that is. They get to share with the world what God has done in them, how he has worked through them. And they have a task that's an enormous privilege. Now in contrast with these negative attributes, there's a second list given. Each elder is to be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Now, it's impossible to deal with all of these in depth in the time that we have together, but let's focus on a few in detail, starting with hospitality. Consider for a moment what the greatest gift of hospitality is. Christ himself expresses it in a sermon in John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. There, Christ is showing us that it is not only possible to live with God because of him, but he goes on, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may, also, there you may be also. We will live with him. We get to spend eternity as members of the family of God, enjoying wonderful unity with him for eternity. There will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain. There will be only reveling in the glory of God and enjoying sweet, unpolluted fellowship with him. The same fellowship is what we mirror when we, show when we ourselves show hospitality as well. When you open your home, you are letting others experience in a small way what it means to be a part of the family of God. And this goes not just for other members of the communion of saints, but for unbelievers as well. You have the opportunity to fellowship with them and to display for them what a special privilege it is to live as a member of the household of God. Unbelievers can then see that what we have is unique. When children honor their parents, when parents deal graciously with their children, when spouses show true love for one another, and when all of this is attributed to God, we honor him. We give him his rightful due. 
when we host others, we're also letting people see past the facade that we may put up for the rest of the world. We're letting them see that we too have flaws. We're not perfect people. However, we let them see that through Jesus Christ, we have a gracious God who loves us despite our flaws. He answers us despite our weaknesses and foolishness. And he dwells in our hearts, changing us, shaping us, and molding us by his Holy Spirit as members of his kingdom. The next point that's given in our passage is that elders are also to be lovers of what is good. Not just men of good reputation on the outside, but men who pursue good from the heart. They pursue good because they pursue the one who is good. They pursue our God, who is the overflowing fountain of all good, that in pursuing him, they might also be a blessing to others. Elders are to be sober-minded, that is, men not given to be influenced by every little thing. It's interesting to note that this is a command that's also given to all Christians in 1 Corinthians 15. They are to be just as they know God is just, not showing partiality. They are to be holy, not defiling themselves with the filthy things of this world, but seeking that which is pure, being set apart for service. And they are to be self-controlled, not easily thrown into a temper, but quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry being willing to listen, wait, and then respond. Each of these qualities, a mirror image of the qualities that are mentioned before, above them in this passage, they are chosen because they reflect on the character of God. They show the world in some small way who God is and what effect he has on people in his life. But these are not just meant for those who are elders or for those who are more righteous in quotes. They are qualities we should all seek. Why? Because we are all, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. While we seek men who have these qualities to lead us, we should also be eagerly cultivating and encouraging those qualities in ourselves and in those around us. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, says Paul. Because that's ultimately who we are imitating, is it not? This is what we do when we seek these things. Have you ever seen a boy who is 10 years younger than his older brother? He imitates him, doesn't he? His older brother is the coolest and he does all the things the younger brother isn't able to yet. He's Strong, interesting, and young. He's interested in all the cool bands. He is just exploring all the liberties the parents give you as you grow up. And when he takes time out of his day to spend time with his younger brother, to take him fishing, to build a raft with him, or to do a project with him, it makes the younger brother's day. He wants to imitate his older brother in so many ways, and the parents hope it's for the best. Now, for those who believe, Christ is our elder brother. He has paved the way for us. He is the one who we are called to submit to and to be imitators of. But more than that, he has bought us with his blood, making us capable of doing this. Now, these being the requirements that we live out in our lives as elders also impact the pew. 
You who are called to, you who are in the pew are also called to uphold the name of God by walking according to his commands. You are called to love God and to love your neighbor. And Christ says this comes out in actions. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Christ-like characteristics of the men in office should be characteristics that all congregation members aspire to. And at the center of all of this should be the word. A Christian is also called to be one who holds fast to the faithful word as he has been taught. For it is by this word that we measure ourselves. The word of God, the scriptures that we read day by day, that is what is precious to us. And it's to this word that we look to whenever we also fall short. For we cannot hold the requirements of this word in our own strength. The oldest, most respected elders can tell you that. Ask them if in their many years of service they've attained perfection. Ask them if they've met one person, man or woman who has. They will tell you no. For they know that all people fall short. But when faithfulness as elders or regular congregation members does waver, when our abilities seem to falter and our dedication falls short, we can rest assured in the comfort that we have a Savior who is faithful and true. In his faithfulness, our sins are covered over in the sight of God. And when we wonder if we can really begin to model for our congregation, really begin to model for those around us, for this world, a way that truly demonstrates our thankfulness to the Father, that demonstrates that we are his people, and that there is no salvation outside of him, that he truly does change and transform lives, we can take courage then in the fact that his spirit is dwelling in us. We can be renewed by the power of God which feeds and nourishes us time and again. And by the working of the Holy Spirit, we can rest assured that this word will be applied to our hearts in a living and vibrant way that we can joyfully live in light of. Amen.